Well, if you're in corporate worship during the second hour, of course, taking communion, it was probably ringing in your ears the fact of the many connections that you find in the book of Exodus and Christ as being the Passover lamb and taking of communion. And we will see some more of those connections as we uh, continue in our study of Exodus uh, chapter 14 this morning. So if you have your copy of God's Word, I invite you to turn to Exodus 14. We're going to look at verses 21 through 31. That'll finish out this chapter. The title of the message, as you can see, is Seeing and Savoring the Miracle at the Red Sea. Now, if you are here for our Genesis study, we're going to come across a motif that carries over from Genesis into Exodus, a pattern that carries over from Genesis to Exodus. Today, we're going to see that in our chapter in Exodus chapter 14. And that motif is called the lifting of eyes motif, the lifting of eyes motif or pattern. If you remember back in Exodus, and I encourage if you, or back in Genesis rather, and I encourage if you have time this week uh, to look through these texts again, there are about half a dozen or so texts that refer to the key characters of Genesis lifting or raising up their eyes and looking. Lifting or raising up their eyes and looking. And this is one of the common features of Hebrew narrative is that the same words and the same expressions are used at the same time to draw our attention into critical details, uh, critical times in the life of certain characters. This is the case in Genesis. Again, half a dozen or so references to this lifting of eyes motif. But then for the first time, we come across this in Exodus in Exodus 14. So just to refresh your memory, if you think all the way back to Genesis chapter 13 and Lot and Abraham, remember Lot and Abraham were basically told by God to look out across the promised land. And if you remember, Lot and Abraham had so many livestock and so many cattle that they couldn't stay in the same place. So God said, hey, look, you guys are going to need to divide. And both of them lift up their eyes and they look to separate places in the promised land. It was a key moment in both of their lives. You jump forward to Genesis chapter 18 with Abraham and Sarah. You remember in Genesis 18 that two angels and the Lord Jesus Christ appeared to Abraham. And the text tells us that Abraham lifted up his eyes and he saw them. Of course, in the context there, uh, Sarah is told that she will be with child, finally. And that would be Isaac. Jump forward to Genesis chapter 22. The next time we see the lifting of eyes motif is just as Abraham was about to sacrifice Isaac, he lifted his eyes and remember he saw a ram and that ram ended up being the substitute for Isaac. So again, the lifting our eyes motif, it, it is used in, in a sparse way to help draw us into key moments in the, in the narrative. Later in Genesis chapter 24, both Isaac and Rebekah are said to have lifted their eyes when they first saw one another. And then, of course, we know that Isaac and Rebekah are the two that help carry on, mainly Isaac, carry on the Abrahamic covenant. Later on in the book of Genesis, we get to chapter 31. Jacob is a key figure, a key character here. After so much of the strife between Jacob and Esau, we are told that God appears to Jacob in a dream and Jacob lifts up his eyes and God tells him to leave. And then over in Genesis chapter 33, after several years of turmoil between Jacob and Esau, fighting over birthrights and blessings, they reunite on good terms. And after several years, after they reunite in Genesis 33, verses 1 and 5, we are told specifically that both Jacob and Esau lifted up their eyes and they saw one another. And then lastly, in Genesis 37, when we get to Joseph and his brothers, uh, the brothers see a caravan of people coming and they had had Joseph in a pit they see a caravan of people coming, in particular the Ishmaelites, 
And we are told that their eyes, they lifted up their eyes and they saw people coming. And that's when Joseph is sold into slavery and makes his way to Egypt. Now, I want that motif to be in your mind as we begin looking at Exodus chapter 14. Because if you look in Exodus 14 verse 10... The lifting their eyes motif continues. In fact, the Israelites, they have gone out, they have left Egypt, they have traveled exactly where God has told them to, and they turned around, as it were, and they lifted up their eyes and they saw the Egyptians coming toward them. Now, please don't understand, Moses isn't trying to tell us, you know, like they lifted up their eye one degree and they were human beings and they had eyes and all of these things. The idea is to draw us in and tell us This is a critical or key moment in the story. But here's what I want us to see. Genesis focuses on individual people and them lifting up their eyes at important moments. Here, for the first time in Exodus, we see the entire nation, everyone, all of the Israelites are lifting their eyes and they're looking up at the Egyptians coming. Now, why does Moses hold off on using this expression until chapter 14. Well, as we saw two weeks ago when we started this chapter, it's because this chapter holds the greatest miracle, the greatest act of redemption, the greatest display of salvation in all of the Old Testament scripture, and that is the parting of the Red Sea. Brothers and sisters, I would argue this morning that we too need to lift our eyes this morning and behold the wonder that we see at this profound and unique parting of the Red Sea. Now, because we haven't had class in a couple weeks, I want to begin our time together by revisiting a few high points from the first 20 verses of Exodus 14, and this will help sort of give us a running start as we jump back into the story, back into this small section dealing with uh, the Red Sea. Now, you can see here from the map, the Israelites are on the move in the wilderness. The Israelites are on the move in the wilderness. If you remember back to Exodus 14, and I've got a little pin here with the little light, yes, they just put a new battery in this thing, so we're ready to go. So let's do some geography here. So back in Passover, in the Feast of Unleavened Bread, all of the Israelites were here in Ramses. And then if you remember Eric Weathers' message from a few weeks back, they traveled from Ramses down to Succoth. So that's the journey that we see going on so far in Exodus 12 and 13. Then at the end of chapter 13, right here in Succoth, they go down to right here where this number two is. It's not called number two in your Bible. It's called Etham. So they make their way to Etham. And then when we started chapter 14 two weeks ago, the text tells us in 14.1 that they are right here, Pi Haharoth. I have no idea if that's how you actually say it, but it's fairly close. So we're told in Exodus 14.1 that that's the location that they're at for the parting of the Red Sea. They're right here. So we've discussed this before multiple times, but we aren't exactly sure where the Israelites crossed the Red Sea. It's not because the Bible isn't clear, it's because the Exodus happened in 1446 B.C., Things have changed a little bit since then, but we have the general location and general whereabouts of where this would have taken place. You can see here them crossing over the body of water, which would have been the Red Sea, which we'll see probably took them about four to six hours to make their way across. So we're not talking about a little creek that you can skip a rock across. This is an event that really transpires the entire night. And just to give you an overview of where we're going, all of this began on Abib 14, right? Passover, the new calendar we talked about in Exodus chapter 12, where they're gonna make their way across the Red Sea, then they're gonna come all the way down here to this number eight in this general region where we have Mount Sinai. And according to Exodus 19, that's gonna take place two months after what we see here in the Red Sea, the parting of the Red Sea. So that's what we've got going on. Exodus 12 to Exodus 19 is about a three-month period. Once we all cross the Red Sea today, it'll be about two more months, and then we'll make our way down here to Mount Sinai. And all of this area in between here is just a bunch of grumbling and complaining. And we'll see that in in the chapters uh, that come. 
But the Israelites are now on the move in the wilderness. They have left Egypt and they are being led, obviously from in human terms, they're being led by Moses, but what continues to go before them? A pillar of cloud and a pillar of fire, depending on the day or night. So in big picture terms, God is first directing them down to Mount Sinai. This is Exodus chapter three. And then they're gonna go northeast up to the promised land. And you can see that on the map. But in the opening verses of chapter 14, as I've already mentioned, God leads them to camp at Pihadaroth, between Migdol and the sea, and in front of Baal Zephon. We see that in verse one, and you can take your eyes there. Chapter 14, verse one. We come to find out, as Sonny went through two weeks ago, that where God leads the Israelites, and this is so interesting, where he leads them is essentially a death trap. He leads them to a death trap. There's no way of escape on a human level. That's the point. <laughs> he leads them to a particular location where the wilderness has closed in on them. They can't go around the Red Sea because it's too large, it's too big. So he takes them to a death trap. From all human perspectives, it looks like there is no way out. But what we have to see in Exodus 14, the parting of the Red Sea, is that God is organizing and directing the perfect situation to make himself known and to put his glory on display. That's exactly what the text says. Look at Exodus chapter 14, verse four. Thus I will harden Pharaoh's heart, I will chase after them, or he will chase after them, and I will be honored through Pharaoh and all his army, and the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. And they will find out soon enough. So the predicament for the Israelites is only setting the stage for Yahweh to come through. And think about this. At the same time, God leads the Israelites to a particular place where they will be closed in by the land, and back in Egypt, he hardens Pharaoh's heart. It's amazing that our omnipotent God can do this. He can harden Pharaoh's heart in Egypt at one time, and then in that exact same moment, he can move two million people to a particular location in the wilderness. This is nothing for God. Again, God has decreed the end from the beginning, Isaiah 46. God is many steps ahead of everyone involved in this narrative. According to chapter 14, verse 8, in the first few days of the Exodus, the Israelites went out in power and in boldness. Literally, that means they went out with a raised hand. God led them out in a mighty hand, and all of the Israelites had supreme confidence in what they were doing. Look at verse 10. But as they look, as they lift up their eyes, there's that motif. Their confidence, their power on the human level is immediately shaken, and we, told, we are told that they become frightened because they see the Egyptians coming. The Israelites recognize they are in a bind. They are landlocked. And by the way, the best estimates tell us that most likely 1,600 Egyptian chariots are in view. They are coming after them. Notice verses 11 and 12, uh, the boldness and the confidence goes to what? Oh, grumbling and complaining. They begin telling Moses that they would rather have stayed in Egypt and remained slaves than to die in the wilderness. It's pretty strong words, right? But they understand their situation from a human level. They are trapped. Pharaoh, on the other hand, because of God hardening of his heart and the Egyptians, they have put together and amassed a massive, powerful, deadly army to go into the wilderness to capture and drag the Israelites back, and they have done so quickly. Uh, verses six and seven tell us this, that uh, this was as quick as possible. It was done hastily. Side note, the best archeological evidence suggests that chariots were present in Egypt during this time. So archeology span is just now catching up to the Bible. They found throughout their research and digging and analyzing that chariots were present in Egypt during this time. Again, 1600s BC we're looking at here. Again, the Exodus, 1446 BC. So if you have time, reread all of chapter 14 this week and keep watch for the amount of times that Moses mentions the juggernaut of the Egyptian army. He's trying to frame in our mind as readers that geographically they can't escape. We just saw that. 
But in terms of military, they are overpowered by the Egyptians. They are far too powerful. In other words, they will need a supernatural mighty hand of God to deal with this issue. Look at verses 13 and 14 quickly. Moses says to the people, do not fear. Stand by and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will accomplish for you today. For the Egyptians whom you have seen today, and notice this, you will never see them again. Why? Verse 14, because the Lord will fight for you while you keep silent. But so far in the narrative, we haven't been told what God is gonna do. Like, well, we know what he's gonna do, right? Because we know the story. But at this point, no one knows what God is going to do to resolve this situation. God's just said, hey, look, you won't ever see the Egyptians again. I'm gonna deal with this. I'm gonna take care of this. But all two million people, including Moses at this point, they don't know what God's gonna do. They have no idea. Now, if you look at verse 15, God tells Moses to tell the Israelites to go forward. Okay, well, that's not too helpful because there's a massive body of water there, right? Verse 16, as for you, Moses, lift up your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it. And the sons of Israel shall go through the midst of the sea on dry land. There it is, verse 16. That's the first time we find out what God is going to do. God will supernaturally divide the sea and the Israelites will walk through it. And mark this, the Israelites will go through the sea on dry land, dry ground. But what about the Egyptians? Again, this is just a preview. Verse 17 and 18 tells us, as for me, Yahweh, I will harden Pharaoh's heart so that the Egyptians will go after them into the parted waters and that God will gain honor over them so they will know that he is Yahweh. So this verse even indicates that something will happen to the Egyptians. Again, we aren't sure, but we will see. Now what's key as we end our review, what kept the Egyptians from coming up on the Israelites? I mean, if they were able to make up that much ground in such little time on 1,600 chariots, why did they not overtake them immediately? It's not just because it was night. They could have dealt with that. Verses 19 and 20 tell us, the angel of God who had been going before the camp of Israel, that pillar of cloud, it says that the pillar of cloud moved from in front of them to what? Behind. Verse 20, so it came between the camp of Egypt and the camp of Israel, and there was a cloud along with the darkness, yet it gave light at night. Thus the one did not come near the other all night. God is in complete control. The Egyptians can't overtake the Israelites at this point because God hasn't been God in one sense. He hasn't parted the Red Sea yet. So that brings us to verses 21 through 31, which we'll study today. So if I was to summarize these verses, I would put it like this. The Israelites lift their eyes and see God make his name and power known at the Red Sea in three profound ways. Miraculously parting the Red Sea, utterly destroying the Egyptian army, and graciously saving his people. And those will be our three points for today. Let's begin looking at this amazing miracle at the Red Sea. First off, let's see the parting of the Red Sea. The parting of the Red Sea. And let's zone in with verse 21 on the miracle itself. Verse 21, Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord swept the sea back by a strong east wind all night and turned the sea into dry land. So the waters were divided. Now you see here in verse 21, this is, you guys recognize this. I don't really even need to say it. In verse 21, the miracle begins with Moses stretching out his hand over the sea. This is just like the 10 plagues. It's the same pattern that we've seen since Exodus 4. This doesn't signal Moses' power, but it signals God's power. 
It is God working through Moses that the, sw- that the sea is swept back by a strong wind. The invisible God is making his power visible through Moses and the moving of the water. It's amazing to think about. The invisible God is making his power known in visible ways. Notice verse 21 tells us that the strong east wind blew all night, dividing the water and turning the muddy bottom of the sea or lake into dry ground. Now, I already had you underline that earlier in Exodus, but you could do so again here in this verse. It's dry ground, dry land. It's not muddy, it's not damp, it's not saturated, but dry ground. And Moses narrates this event with precision, by the way. And you know this. His word choice is strategic. The Hebrew word for sea, and listen to me here, the Hebrew word for sea is never used for low or small water areas like swamps or marshes or flooding in your own backyard before you get a French drain put in. It's never used for anything of that sort. The word Moses uses is always used for large bodies of water. So think Pacific Ocean. Think Lake Grapevine. And just because God uses natural elements, the wind, it doesn't mean that this miracle is any less miraculous. Remember, it was God that used an east wind to bring in a plague of locusts. So here we're told God literally swept the sea back and he made the sea flow backwards. It's interesting here, the the word that Moses uses for swept is the same word used in 2 Kings to describe someone being carried out to exile. So the wind swept the sea back and the waters were divided. The waters were divided or the waters were split. It's also translated in the Old Testament. By the way, it's the same word used back in Genesis chapter 22 when Abraham was collecting wood to sacrifice Isaac, right? He was going to build an altar to sacrifice Isaac, and it tells us that he split or divided or cut wood. That's the same word used here. The bottom line of the bottom line is is that God is performing a miracle. This isn't a mere natural occurrence. Notice the responses that we come across here in the text. We come across three responses. So the miracle has started, but now let's look how people react. The first group that we come across is the Israelites. The Israelites, verse 22. The sons of Israel went through the midst of the sea on the dry land, and the waters were like a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. Let's stop there. So all two million Israelites move forward. Remember, God had just commanded them to walk forward, move forward. So God parts the Red Sea, and the Israelites begin to walk through it. Notice the additional description of uh, the parting of the Red Sea. Verse 22, the waters were like a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. Now, the liberals, and I always bring up the liberal scholars, air quotes, and all of those who don't believe uh, the literal nature of the Bible. The text here tells us that they went across on dry land and there were waters of wall, the walls of water on the left and on the right. The the liberals always want to say that, well, this parting of the Red Sea or the Israelites walking through the Red Sea or they were just wading through the waters. It was ankle deep. It was knee deep. Well, maybe it was just waist deep and, you know, they just hoisted the kids up on their shoulders and and walked through it. No, that's just not what the Bible says here. Now, I made it a little more simplistic. They try and put together some arguments. But that's not what Scripture says. In fact, do you think that two million people could have walked through waist deep water in four to six hours throughout the night? I can barely make it across my parents' swimming pool waist deep. But again, Moses' word choice is key here. 
When he says a wall of water on the left and a wall of water on the right, it's the same word used in Joshua chapter 6 for the walls of Jericho. It's the same word. Last time I checked, the walls of Jericho were pretty large. That's the comparison. Psalm 78, 13 says that God divided the sea and caused them to pass through, and he made the waters stand up like a heap. Psalm 106, 8 and 9 says, verse 9 in particular, God rebuked the Red Sea and dried it up, and he led them through the deeps as through the wilderness. The testimony, not just of Exodus, but the psalmist, which the Psalms are written so we might be able to worship God. The, the psalmist says, look, God, he, he, he dried up the Red Sea. He rebuked it. And he made the water stand up like a heap. So the Israelites are on the move. And they're walking on dry land. What are the Egyptians up to? Let's see their response in verse 23. Then the Egyptians took up the pursuit Notice the language here. And all Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, and his horsemen went in after them into the midst of the sea. Again, that repetition here in verse 23 is, is to show us the magnitude of his army. They are completely committed at getting the Israelites. And think about this. The fact that the Egyptians begin taking pursuit of the Israelites into the Red Sea gives testimony to the miraculous nature of the parting of the Red Sea and that the land was dry. Now, I'm not in the chariot business, nor have I ridden on chariots as of late. But there is no way that hundreds of thousands of chariots would have pursued the Israelites if it was a mud fest. Again, the Egyptians were the powerhouse in the ancient world. And the chariots were the main sort of military transportation in the ancient world. How dumb would it have been for them to go into the muddy tracks? Well, they wouldn't have. Because they know that they wouldn't have got stuck. These men are the best of the best. They're trained. They're skilled. They never would have went into the muddy ground. But it was dry, so they did. By the way, if the water was waist deep, chest deep, do you think that they would have taken the chariots in then? I'm not for sure the horses would have made it through. That many hours of that high of water. So their full-blown commitment proves the miraculous event. The ground was dry. The water was walled up. They chase after the Israelites because they are confident. They can look straight ahead. Two million people are not getting a drop of water on them. <laughs> so they exhaust all their resources, all of Pharaoh's horses, all of his chariots and his horsemen go in to the Red Sea after the Israelites. Next, let's look at Yahweh's response. What does he do? Verse 24 at the morning watch, the Lord looked down on the army of the Egyptians through the pillar of fire and cloud and brought the army of the Egyptians into confusion. He caused their chariot wheels to swerve and he made them drive with difficulty. So the Egyptians said, let us flee from Israel for the Lord is fighting for them against the Egyptians. Now clearly between verses 23 and 24, some time has passed. Verse 20, where we reviewed, suggests that the miracle began sometime during the middle of the night. That is true. Verse 24, which we just read, advances the chronology to the morning time, maybe sometime between 2 a.m. and 6 a.m. Again, it's hard to nail down the exact time. But it is around that time frame. So at that, that point that we are told that God looks down and assesses the situation, that tells us that he looks down through the pillar of fire and the cloud. 
Now, there's a lot of discussion about what God is doing here. But the primary point is this. God is ever-present and he is actively engaged at this scene. He's governing and controlling everything. He didn't simply move the wind and then just kick his feet up amongst his gigantic throne and put it on cruise control. No, he is working miraculously. He is sustaining the walls of water, and he is also working providentially, leading the Israelites through unscathed on dry ground and then slowly leading the Egyptians into the sea. And at this predetermined moment, God begins to wreak havoc on the Egyptians through a series of of hindrances. It's amazing. First, if you look in verse 24, we're told that God confuses them. Notice it says that he brought the army of the Egyptians into confusion. Confusion means to bring into motion It comes from a root word that means to put into commotion. Uh, This is supernatural confusion mentally, and they can't comprehend what's happening. They're on dry ground. They haven't had any issues driving and riding the chariots all the way up to the Israelites as they journeyed towards them. But here we're told that God miraculously confuses them. They don't know what is happening. Look at verse 25. Not only has he confused him, God has affected their chariots. Verse 25 tells us, he caused their chariot wheels to swerve and he made them drive with difficulty. And by the way, another assignment for you this week. See how all of the various English translations deal with the Hebrew words here. Let me just give you a sample. The chariot wheels came off, they swerved, they locked, they jammed, they clogged. One commentator says that God bent their chariot wheels out of line. The word used here is the same word used for taking off clothes or removing something or cutting off or tearing down. Look, The Egyptians weren't stuck in the mud because there wasn't any mud. God has supernaturally confused them mentally and now all of their military power is breaking. It's falling apart. They don't know what's happening. It's not that they hit some giant rock at the bottom of the Red Sea and their axles broke. No. God is supernaturally hindering them from getting after the Israelites. This is where most of the commentators from the liberal side of things say the ground was damp or wet and the chariots were just too heavy. Since there would have been two men on each chariot, they most likely just sunk into the ground. Okay, I'm with you on that if the ground was wet. But we're told the ground was dry. By the way, to take this one step further... Uh, And I think you'll love this. And if you've been here for our Exodus study, you'll get this. The root word for the Hebrew word translated difficulty. In verse 25, he made them drive with difficulty. The root word for that Hebrew word is the same root word that was used all throughout the plague narrative for the hardening of Pharaoh's heart. It's amazing. Well, what do the Egyptians do amid all of the confusion? Notice verse 25. Let us flee from Israel, for the Lord is fighting for them against the Egyptians. You know, once they finally got their bearings straight, and again, Moses is sort of condensing things for us here, but once they got their bearings straight, They understood exactly what was happening. They understood that it was Yahweh God who was fighting for the Israelites. Remember, God has said multiple times in Exodus that he will have honor over Pharaoh and the Egyptians and they will know that I am God. 
They got it in the middle of the sea as their chariots broke down by supernatural means. They recognized Yahweh as the supreme God, the almighty God. But rather than running to him in repentance in that moment, they try and flee. Flee here means they have resolve, a determination. They are determined in that moment to get out of Dodge. Forget the Israelites. We can't catch them, which makes no sense, right? I mean, they're on chariots. Everybody else is walking. So they attempt to turn around and get out of the sea. But you know how the story goes. It is too late for them. And that brings us to the destruction of the Egyptians. The destruction of the Egyptians. Now at this point, we don't know how the Egyptians will die, right? We, we haven't been told. We know they will. God will have honor over them, but we haven't been told. But here in verse 26, we get a limited preview. God is going to tell Moses exactly how it will happen. Look at verse 26. Then the Lord said to Moses, again, God is in control. He's running the show. Stretch out your hand over the sea so that the waters may come back over the Egyptians, over their chariots and their horsemen. So you see there in verse 26, the introductory formula. At the precise moment that God wants this miracle to end, he ends it. Moses, stretch out your hand over the sea. And when you do so, the waters will come back and all of the Egyptians will be crushed. Now, I think it's safe to say at this point, God's people have crossed the Red Sea and they're on the other side. I wonder what it would have been like to be the last one across. But here in verse 26, God tells Moses in advance what's about to happen. Moses, you're going to stretch out your hand like you've done with the plagues and the water is coming back. Now, I know I sound like a broken record, but this is the beauty of Hebrew narrative. Moses inserts one sentence to elevate us as readers, to tell us here in Omega, we know more than everyone else. The two million Israelites didn't know this was going to happen. The Egyptians didn't know this was going to happen. Moses didn't know this was going to happen until possibly being in the middle of the sea and God telling him. <laughs> Moses, stretch out your hands. And they will be crushed. You see, in some way, with Moses presenting the material to us in this manner, it's making God known to us through the story. It's amazing. So we move from a limited preview of what will happen to the Egyptians to a complete destruction. A complete destruction. Verse 27. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the sea returned to its normal state at daybreak while the Egyptians were fleeing right into it. Then the Lord overthrew the Egyptians in the midst of the sea. Verse 28, the waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen, even Pharaoh's entire army that had gone into the sea after them. Not even one of them remained. So verse, 20, verse 27 tells us that Moses stretched out his hand over the sea and then it returned to its normal state, its normal water level. You, know, you could say it this way, it returned to its full depth. This was probably around 6 a.m. or so. So in the same way that God parted the sea, he returned the waters miraculously. Now, this could have been instantaneous to some degree, or it could have been a gradual return. Regardless, divine activity was at play. Now, the Egyptians, bless their hearts, they were in the middle of the sea, and they were so far in the middle of the sea that it didn't matter what direction they went. 
They could have been at the front of that line or the back. If they were going forward or backward or to the left or to the right, there was no escape for them. Look at verse 27. It says, the Lord overthrew the Egyptians in the midst of the sea. God is perfectly fine, perfectly fine taking responsibility for this. This isn't on Moses. This isn't on Aaron. It isn't on the two million Israelites. This, this is on God. And he is perfectly fine taking responsibility for this. Uh, the Hebrew word for overthrew has the idea of shaking off. The idea of tossing. The idea of shaking off dust. You ever clean something in your house and you pick it up? You know, you're moving, you're looking behind, and you peer in and, and you see dust. That's the idea here. It was like moving a dust particle for God. He destroyed them all. Verse 28 punctuates the extensive nature of their destruction. It says, The waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen, even Pharaoh's entire army that had gone into the sea. And notice the last Statement, not even one of them remained. Not one. Now put yourself in Pharaoh's shoes here. And by the way, we don't know if Pharaoh is in the sea or not. Commentators are divided on it. We don't know if he was in the midst of the sea or he was just watching. Could have been either. We don't know. But put yourself in Pharaoh's shoes. Egypt has been obliterated because of the plagues. There's been economic destruction, political upheaval. His firstborn was no doubt killed in the 10th plague. His military is at the bottom of the Red Sea. His empire is gone. His kingdom is done. Remember, it was common during that day for people to hold the pharaohs in such a regard that they attributed deity to them. Pharaoh is no God. He is a mere man that thought that he could take on God face to face. So God has made his name and power known through the parting of the Red Sea. Here he has completely destroyed the Egyptian army. Lastly, here in the final few verses, we will see the salvation of the Israelites so this ends on a high point. I won't, I won't send you home there. Let's finish this chapter. It should be on the slides, verse 27. Or excuse me, verse 29. But the sons of Israel walked on dry land through the midst of the sea. And the waters were like a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. Now you ought to be thinking, wait a minute here. Didn't we just read that? <laughs> Didn't we just read that verse? Because if you glance back to verse 22, you'll notice that verse 22 and verse 29 are almost identical. But there is something interesting going on in Hebrew here at the beginning of this verse. In fact, verse 29, this verse begins with a noun. So if you look through Exodus 14, all 31 verses, all 31 verses except for verse 10 and here in verse 29, all of the verses except for verse 10 and 29 begin with verbs. That's normal Hebrew. I don't know much of Hebrew, but I know that. Verse 10 begins with a noun and verse 29 begins with a noun. Again, verse 10 is to draw us in to make Pharaoh the focus. But here in verse 29, or verse 29, what God is doing is he is recounting and summarizing the whole point of Exodus 14. Verse 22 focuses on the Israelites and their coming salvation. Verse 22 is a preview of them walking through the Red Sea. But verse 29, with the noun at the beginning of the sentence, it brings the focus to the Israelites and the fact that they have been rescued. They have been delivered by the mighty hand of God. And you could take it even one step further. 
In verse 22, and listen to me here, verse 22, there's an imperfect verb that's used. They went through the Red Sea that describes an incomplete action. So verse 22 says they're walking through the Red Sea, but it's not a completed action. They haven't made it all the way through. Verse 29 uses the verb, the Hebrew verb walked, and it is a perfect verb to describe a completed action. So you can see how the story is being unfolded to us. Uh, The repetition here is to tell us that the miracle is done. It is complete. God has crushed the Egyptians and the people have been saved. They have walked through the Red Sea. They are now on the other side. And you can even see that in the English translations that I've got up here for you on the slides. Notice verse 30. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians. And Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. I mean, imagine being there that day. What a massive turn of events. The Israelites were essentially trapped on the shore with no way of escape to then miraculously walking through the Red Sea for about four to six hours, and then to turn around and see the Egyptians, the greatest armed force of the day, to be thrown around like dust in the middle of the Red Sea. And notice the exclamation point you've got here in verse 30. We are told here that Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. No ambiguity. Clear terms. The Egyptians were dead. But that's not the point of verse 30. And you can mark this in your Bible or in your notes. This is the first time in all of Exodus that the Hebrew word for saved is used. Moses intentionally withholds this word until this very moment. They have been saved, helped, saved from danger, saved from the Egyptians. This is the climax of redemption in Old Testament terms. So how did the Israelites respond? I mean, again, imagine being on the shoreline there that day. Notice verse 31 When Israel saw the great power which the Lord had used against the Egyptians, the people feared the Lord and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. I know you see this here in verse 31. When Israel saw the great power which the Lord has used, literally the mighty hand of God. The great power of God. Well, that's what we've seen. Was that not the whole point of Exodus 13? The mighty hand of God taking them out of Egypt. Now it is the mighty hand of God that's crushing Egypt. And they saw it that day. And they were saved. Notice verse 30 and 31. And this is going to tie us back into where we started. Notice the Israelites saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Verse 31, the Israelites saw that it was God alone who was responsible for it all. That day they lifted their eyes and they saw the Egyptians coming. But then at the end of the day or the morning, to be more accurate, They witnessed with their own eyes the crushing of the Egyptians and their final redemption from slavery in Egypt. They had been saved that morning. They saw and they knew that it was by the mighty hand of God. So what did they do? Quickly, let me show you. First off, they feared the Lord. Verse 31, they feared the Lord. What what does this mean? It means they respected God. They were in awe of God. But they also understood that their God is no respecter of persons. If you deny and reject him, there will be consequences. And all of the Egyptians' body 
Bodies on the seashore were a testimony to that reality. You must fear the Lord in order to be saved. Next, they believed in the Lord. They believed in the Lord. They were convinced that God was and is exactly who he has said that he is. They trusted him. They had faith in him. They believed that he was a saving God. They believed that he was a redeemer because he is. Remember, all of the Old Testament uses the Exodus story as a paradigm for redemption. When the nation of Israel wanted to talk about salvation and rescue and redemption, it was the Exodus they went to. This is the climax of it. Yahweh saves The third way that they responded in the final way is they believed in Moses. Now, why is this important? Well, that's because this is only Exodus 14. We've got to get all the way through Exodus chapter 40. Now, why does it say they believed in Moses? And here's why. Because Moses will lead the people to Mount Sinai two months after this in Exodus 19 and 20. Moses will lead the people to Mount Sinai, just as Exodus 3 said would happen, and then God himself will call Moses up on the mount by voice and give him the what? The Ten Commandments, the law. This is why the people had no problem believing Moses. (laughs) Moses was God's prophet, God's spokesperson. Now, what does this mean for us today? Let me leave you with this. We must behold the redemptive and salvific work of God in the lives of the Israelites at the Red Sea. I'm not going to tell you to go out and do something today, (laughs) right? But I will tell you to think upon and meditate on our God and the redemption and salvation that he brought that day. But don't stop there. Don't stop there. Meditate on the true and final redemption and salvation that is found in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Pray with me. God, we are grateful that you would reveal and record through the hands of Moses such a powerful story of redemption, a real authentic story of you saving your people God, let this be a paradigm in our own heart because it previews the gospel of Jesus Christ where if you repent and believe in the Son, the Father will bring about redemption, a new creation in your own life. God, that's what we see in Exodus as the Israelites made it through the Red Sea to the other side It was a new start. It was a new beginning. It was a fresh start, just as it is with the gospel. We're grateful for Jesus Christ. In his name we pray, amen.